Hey, Gavin. Hi, Louie. How's it going? You are still up tucked away in these woods. In the in the pines, the sweet Into little the woods pines. you went? <laughs> yes. You know, what's funny is for the last couple days, it's been like, oh, it's September. Well, it's fall. Here's some leaves. Here's some pumpkins. And today it's like, it's 89 degrees. Blazing. I hope um, you love well, it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say your hair swoopy is the longest and swoopiest it has ever been. It's so, ever been. It's so much. I hate it. Uh, but also, you, we're in a pandemic. So you could be working at a hot topic as an assistant manager. <laughs> um, put a streak in that hair, hun. Get me a lip ring. Oh, you'd be leading the Black Parade. And and you know what? I'd follow, okay? So glad that you came into the city with your dad for that. Is, <laughs> is so he, stupid. Is he your dad? <laughs> is he your daddy? Oh um, my goodness. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Mixed Reviews. We are a film podcast in which we take a film subject such as an actor, director, or a mini-genre, and we take two weeks, or in this case, three weeks, and we watch as many <laughs> movies as we can, and we report back to you what's good and what's not. The reviews are mixed. We oh, did take so a little mixed. extra time for this episode, though, but I think, one, we deserved it, because yes. it is summertime, the end of the summer. It is a dog days, um, and they are over. Um, Thank you. Also... It's it's a pandemic. No one's yes. employed. Uh, I, I actually got a job for like a week. Congratulations. And, and, yeah, thank you. I worked incredibly hard as I am wont to do, but that also meant no movies. Yeah. So. Yeah, of course. And also, I mean, uh, as everyone will um, know soon enough, um, this episode was just really um, a lot to get through. Yes, absolutely. Um, and um, I, I'm glad to spend more time with this um, subject. Before we get into our old business, I do just want to take a moment, and I don't want to extend the episode too much, but there's some real-world stuff going on, and I think, you know, it's it's always good to acknowledge it. Um, as I mentioned several times already, we're still in a pandemic, so please wear a fucking mask and wash your hands and be extra conscious about where you're going and who you're around, social distance, yada, yada, yada. Please stay safe. The other thing yep. is, and we we've talked about this on the show, but we are not immune to the real-world happenings police continue to kill black people mm -hmm. uh, since this since our last episode there have been incidents in wisconsin in rochester new york people are protesting our hearts go out to the protesters and please support them any way that you can obviously if you can't go out and protest if there's any way that you can donate please do so because we live in a world where people should be treated as people and not have to worry about being shot on the streets by anyone uh, Absolutely. But cops, especially. So Yeah, especially cops. Um, also, uh, this is a little bit old now, but from our last episode, um, we lost Chadwick Boseman. Yes. Um, which was, I remember when I was sitting with Derek watching TV and I got the news alert and my whole body started shaking. I had like a very visceral reaction. I think sometimes when um, news happens that is so shocking and so... I mean, you know, obviously when any life is cut short, it's you know, fucking awful. Um, but I guess, you know, we had um, just seen him in two of our um, episodes when we were celebrating Black um, Hollywood. Um, you know, we saw him in The Five Bloods um, in our Spike um, episode. And then um, also in our first um, episode, Angela Bassett. And um, 
talking about you know Black Panther and just its legacy and um yeah that was just some really fucking awful shitty news and I don't want to um contribute to like any more takes ex- except to say that it's sad and he clearly was um you know a great uh artist and it sucks that he is no longer with us Ab- absolutely and and genuinely just a a huge loss not only for you know a, a life and talent cut short but for everybody who knew him and for everything that he was going to do so right. totally um we gavin you sent me we have a, a new review we do have a new review which i think is like a fun and perfect way to get into our next this current episode um, I wonder, should we do the poll first or should we sure. do the review? Let's, let's do the poll first and then we'll read you our review. But no, now there's like suspense built to the review. So yes, just, correct. Yeah. <gasps> it's shocking. Gavin, it's shocking. I am sh- I, did you just hear my gasp? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, here we go. Our last episode, we talked about Kevin Bacon, which literally Footloose haunted me <laughs> all these past three weeks going to the grocery store. Footloose is playing, you know, people are singing along to Footloose at the grocery store. Um, Everyone was anyway. wearing leg warmers. It was yes, crazy. Yes, Everyone was getting Footloose. <laughs> um, so we asked you guys to vote for what your favorite Kevin Bacon uh, movie. My pick Pirates came at 3%. That was my vote. Thank you so much to me. <laughs> For voting for my favorite Kevin Bacon movie. Um, try and find Pirates. It's fun. Um, it's spelled like pyrotechnic. Though, yeah, not... P-Y-R-A-T-E-S. Um, oh, other I got that at... spelling bee point. <laughs> you sure did. Ding, ding, ding. Um, other came in at 19%. So uh, we had someone write in. Nick B said he loves the River Wild. Um, Eddie and others talked about um, their love for Hollow Man. Uh, my friend Marielle said that she live, laugh, loves Tremors, which I thoroughly endorse. Um, and then in a fucking tie, Gavin, we got Footloose and your pick, Stir of Echoes, at 39%. Also, want you to know that my friend Jimmy texted me. He said, you know what? I agree with Gavin. Stir of Echoes <gasps> is great and you need to watch it. And I said, wow, I cannot believe you have fucking betrayed me. <laughs> You know what, too? Uh, I so uh, Sunday I was rather busy and I was like, I know this is the last day of the poll, but I'm going to wait as long as I can to vote. And like 7 p.m. I opened Twitter and it was like, you ran a poll. And I was like, I didn't vote. (gasps) And by the way, yeah. And so it could have won. It could have won. And then it didn't. And it's my fault. So I want this all to be a lesson to you all in November. Fucking vote. Come vote. <laughs> vote. <laughs> because if you Request don't. Request your ballot now. Footloose Turn could, it in now. <laughs> Footloose could tie with Stir of Echoes. It's the same thing, Gavin. That's the it's, same it's thing. It's the same thing. It's the same. I apologize. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> but thank you, everyone, for voting. And um, not you, Gavin, because you didn't. No, I didn't. <laughs> My civic duty just flushed down the drain. I'm the worst. Um, but enough with last week's episode to get into this week's episode, we're going to read you this review that, um, was left to us, uh, like a week ago. Um, and it says found this podcast last year by way of this hot Oscar buzz via vanity fairs, little gold men, uh, Gavin and Louie know their stuff, put in the work. Don't shy away from strong opinions and always make me laugh. I love hanging out with these two guys who are at heart, huge film fans ready to 
big up people's work on screen and their charity work off screen. The Joan Crawford episode was a favorite of mine. And this is from Susan out in Dublin, Ireland. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, but before you even say that, I just want to real quick say I noticed like a couple of weeks ago a huge uptick in our Irish listenership, and I was like, "This is her." Thank you. <laughs> thank, wow. Thank, yeah, Susan. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Susan. Um, and <laughs> the 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 verbiage ready to big up people's work i love that love it love it we love big upping people's yeah. work verb um, noun baby love mm-hmm. it um and yes we love joan carver's episode also I, I that was our first episode we did that was like old hollywood um classic icon and uh, similarly to this episode we had to put in a lot of work to really de- and i I, we even talked about it for this episode. You know, it's I had not seen any of the, <laughs> this person's <laughs> movies, um, uh, but it, it's just always so fun to really dive into this like great big um, body of work. Um, all that to say, Gavin, who are we talking about today? Why we are talking about the classic, the lovely, the two-time Oscar winner, Olivia de Havilland. Olivia, Olivia de Havilland. De Havilland. Um, like uh, first of all. That name. That name. God. <laughs> what a they just bitch. Don't, they, just, <laughs> they just don't make Hollywood stars with no. names like that anymore, right? Like, so, Sorry, Susan Sarandon. <laughs> like, even I was thinking of like, you know, because I think, and we'll talk about it, you know, uh, Olivia de Havilland for a lot of her career was playing just like rom-com-y type ingenue yeah. roles and, and, and then found her way into serious type things that were so fucking good. And I was trying to think of like, someone similar currently and i was like you know uh reese witherspoon yeah you know to me is like the most and, and not, i'm not comparing them as like the, the same level of actors but like reese for sure got her start out doing comedy comedy kind of you know um rom-com type stuff but then you know she's been making her own shit and doing wild and um and i was like is that kind of but all that to say olivia de havilland has like this I don't know, this mystique, this air, this notoriety. Um, and uh, yeah, I... And I think there's probably, because of a name like that, and and because of, you think classic Hollywood, you think prestige, I think people probably put her into sort of a, like, stodgy box. Like, a, right. like oh, she's, like, upper crust. And I, I think the, the opportunity for our listeners here is if they go back and they watch her movies, you find she is so much more than that. And it's funny because when we did Joan Crawford, we really talked about how um, one of the things that Joan, um, because I knew her, so I can call her Joan, of course, uh, best friends. Uh, (laughs) She was constantly unsure of herself and and constantly in in the box of like, you know, I have to do this because I have to be good enough and I have to. And I don't think Olivia de Havilland ever had those doubts right. it seemed like from the get she was confident and strong and she knew what she wanted and she was willing to do whatever she had to to get it but also constantly asserting that like she is the boss right and it's also funny though because i think both her and joan and i think a lot of stars of that time though had so much reverence for yeah. 
Hollywood and the magic of it all. And it might have just been because it was so much harder to make movies then. There were fewer stars. But you can tell she she took it very seriously. Yeah. Um, She was definitely um, confident and knew what she wanted and was going to go get it. Um, Unlike Joan, who was always seeking and wanting more and wanting yeah, and respect wanting, and wanting that approval. And I, f- and I feel right. like it's funny, you know, very early on in her career, we're going to get to this in, in the rewind, but very early on in her career, after doing the screen test for Captain Blood with Errol Flynn, her and him had a private conversation in which he asked her what she wanted. And I said, I would like respect for difficult work well done. And then I said, well, what do you want out of life? And he said, I want success. And yet, and she did say, well, isn't it lovely that we both got what we wanted? You know, yeah. but yeah, but like the, the fact that she had such foresight to be like, I want to do a good fucking job and I mm-hmm. want people to know me for that. Yeah. And and that's and I think that's what sort of separates her from a lot of actors of that era. A lot of them really wanted to be famous. And she's like, I want fame if I fucking deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. She's I mean, I and again, I didn't know much about her. I knew that she was a Hollywood icon. I knew that she was one of the last living legends. She just died in July, June yeah. uh, um, at the age of 104. Yeah, casual. So she was I also knew. gonna be like, I am successful. <laughs> yeah. I'm winning the age and contest. <laughs> she said, Ryan Murphy, you motherfucker. I know you're out there and you're going down. I'm uh, I'm holding on through sheer spite. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I had not seen any of her movies. Um I watched uh, I don't know, 15-ish. Um and, and, and- uh and she had a long career. She was in yeah. about 40 films over the course of uh, close to 50 years. So, like, yeah. Yeah. And and you can – we're going to ride the wave of a very um, crazy career where she, you know, fucking laid it down. Yeah. Um, so, Gavin, why don't we get into a rewind? Absolutely. Dame Olivia Mary de Havilland was born mm. on July 1st. 1916 and she lived until she passed in july 26th of of this year her mother lillian fontaine uh whose maiden name was Roos, which i love um she was a stage actress and uh her father walter de Havilland, was an english professor at the imperial university in tokyo city uh, and he eventually became a patent attorney her mother lillian and her father walter met in japan in 1913 and married after a year um walter cheated a lot uh Ugh. not not the really happiest of uh of marriages uh but olivia de Havilland was born in tokyo uh they moved to a large house in tokyo city and lillian would often give informal singing recitals <laughs> wow yeah mm. her sister joan uh joan de uh, bovier de Havilland, by the way is joan's full name uh who would later be known as the joan fontaine the actress you would recognize her from Hitchcock's Rebecca and from Suspicion. Uh, she was born 15 months later. Um, both citizen, both sisters are citizens of the UK uh, through birthright. Neither kid was super healthy as a child. And so just three years after Olivia was born, 
Uh, Lillian persuaded her husband to let her take the kids back to England for better climate. Uh, they started sailing out and they stopped in San Francisco because Olivia had tonsillitis. Uh, and then Joan developed pneumonia while they were there. And so Lillian was just like, fuck it. We live in California. Um, <laughs> Wait a second. They were trying to get from Japan to the UK. Yep. Taking the long ray way. To, to, I don't know if there's a short way, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, it feels like if I was on a fucking boat from Japan to England, I'd be like, you know what? California is a pretty fucking good place to yeah. stop. I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> no more no more seasickness. We're good. Yeah. I once said to my mother, uh, whatever happened to the goat we had in San Francisco? And she said, that wasn't San Francisco. That was Japan. Mm-hmm. And there was a goat on the property uh, because it was the fashion in those days to give very young children goat's milk instead of cow's milk. Mm-hmm. And that's why the goat was on the property. Mm-hmm. Um, then I have other memories. I can see my mother very clearly uh, standing, I thought, having a fitting, but she might have been selecting fabrics for some purpose. It was before lunchtime, and there were wonderful scraps of silk on the floor all around her. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stand up. I was crawling then. And it was lovely to crawl around among these beautiful scraps of fabric. Mm-hmm. And Walter was like, um, I don't know, I've been sleeping with the housekeeper. And so he <laughs> leaves them, goes back to Japan, and uh, He's eventually... He's like, Tokyo's pretty lit, so yeah. I'm gonna stay. <laughs> eventually marries their housekeeper. Um, Olivia was big in the arts as a kid. You know, she did ballet lessons. Uh, she did piano at the age of five. She learned to read before she was six. Um, her mother would teach her drama, music, and elocution lessons. And she had her recite passages from Shakespeare... This is this is good. This is a perfect time for me to do this. <laughs> she had her recite passages from Shakespeare in order to strengthen Olivia's diction. Do you think like the mom? I mean, she was a stage actress, I guess, but like she must have been like a very frou frou English woman. Yeah, she was like elocution and ballet <laughs> and music. You know, like yeah. that's like the vibe I'm getting. Especially and like, God, if you and your sister are not like just one year apart. I can imagine already the oh. seeds of um, trouble. It begins. And, uh, you know, during the during the Joan Crawford episode, we talked about, you know, Joan's famous feud with Betty Davis. But I think there is no better feud in classic Hollywood than maybe the feud between Olivia de Havilland and her sister, Joan Fontaine. Yeah. Uh, essentially, she starts becoming or seemingly, I don't want to slander anybody, even if they are dead, uh, seemingly starts becoming very jealous of Joan because she doesn't like having to share a lot of things with her, like birthdays and, you know, according to some books, and I've heard it told multiple different ways, but at the age of nine, Olivia wrote herself her own will. And in the will, she wrote to my sister Joan, I bequeath my beauty for she has none. Holy shit. Um, I've also oh. heard that she wrote, I bequeath uh, her, my ability to attract boys, for she has none. Wow. The library was open. Yeah, exactly. I, I like Beauty better because she was a fucking nine-year-old, and it's less creepy there. <laughs> um, I love 
I love just being at nine, being able to like have those high reads oh, yeah. ready to fucking go <laughs> exactly. on your like little sister. Exactly. Oh, God. She took the glasses off and RuPaul was like, you won the reading challenge. Yeah. <laughs> um, God. It's like a villain origin story. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, there was there was always tension there. In April of 1925, uh, when Lillian's divorce was finalized, she married George Milan Fontaine, who was a department store manager for O.A. Hale & Co. in San Jose. Um, he was supposedly like a good provider and like people liked him as a businessman, but he was super strict with these girls mm. and uh, neither of them particularly cared for him. Um, you know, th- so they lived there for a while. She gets her education um, in 1933 De Havilland made her debut in amateur theater in Alice in Wonderland, uh, which was a production of the Saratoga community players. She began appearing in lots of other plays, Merchant of Venice, Hansel and Gretel, uh, she played Liz Bennett, uh, Lizzie Bennett in uh, Pride and Prejudice. Um, and actually, that led to a huge confrontation between her and George Fontaine because he told her she had to choose between staying home and appearing in the production and not being allowed home. So she went and fucking performed and then moved yeah. in with a friend of, wow. her, of her mom. Wow. Yeah. Um, she graduated in 34, um, where she was offered a scholarship to mills college in oakland uh which she was going to be an english teacher um but i had th- no idea that she was a bay area queen that's amazing i love it so much <laughs> so she while she's there she gets offered a role the role of puck in the saratoga community theater production of midsummer night's dream that same summer austrian director max reinhardt had come to california for a major new production of the same play that was going to premiere at the hollywood bowl and one of his assistants saw her perform puck in saratoga and offered her the second understudy position for the role of Hermia in this Hollywood Bowl production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Can you imagine? That's yeah. I, I, that was one of the first movies I watched, and I didn't even know that it was one of it was her first. It's thing that her she did. first movie. A couple of movies she made afterwards came out before it, but mm-hmm. it was her first film. Yeah. Oh, so she did the play for she, him first. She did the play, but so she's <sighs> the second understudy in the play. <laughs> One week before the show goes up, her, the first understudy, Jean Rivero, uh, had to back out, and the lead actress had to back out. That lead actress is Gloria Stewart, who was in the original Invisible Man and would later go on to be the older version of Rose in Titanic. What? Yep. Gloria Stewart was her name. And... Um... But since her, her film, which curiously enough was at Warner Brothers, was uh, prolonged, she couldn't go on opening night, and so he came up to me five nights before the premiere and said, you will play the part. She's 18 at the time, and Reinhardt loves the, you know, the four weeks of, of the tour with her so much that when Warner Brothers offers him a chance to film the play as a as a movie um he offers her the role she's one of the only people in the cast that he takes from the play to the movie and in all honesty at first she was like no ma'am i'm gonna be a teacher what yeah warners wouldn't let me play hermia in midsummer night's dream unless i agreed to sign a long-term contract which i didn't want to do um i wanted to go to mills college but reinhardt 
was thought me most unreasonable, and he backed me into the office of the casting director, and, and I said, well, not seven years, five years, five years. And, and they said, well, okay, five years. And so November 12th, 1934, at a starting salary of $200 a week, she started her career as a professional actor, which would span more than 50 years. Wow. And I mean, that movie is gorgeous. Gorgeous. I I was, and it, it's free on like, literally, if you look it up on your Roku, it's free on one of those like random fucking yeah. sites. Um, uh, and it's just like, I don't know if it's like the best movie ever or like best production of it, but it's g- 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 gorgeous. And it's, and it's surprisingly good. I, I agree. I don't know if it's the best one. It's really good, though. The sets are beautiful. Like, there's like, ex- you can tell that they are um, uh, giving the space for dance and costumes and light and the sets. It's opulent, extravagant. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's really something to see. Mickey Rooney's performance as Puck is unhinged. Yeah, and it's the worst. <laughs> that fucking laugh. I wanted to, I was like mute, could not. Yeah. Like, I don't. Ugh. The tiniest little Mickey Rooney. Also on the set, uh, which sort of sucked a little bit, uh, Reinhardt couldn't really speak English, so they brought in William Dieterle to to translate his directions to everybody. Um, and Olivia de Havilland really credited Dieterle as giving her sort of her uh, on-camera acting techniques. Um, and she said she also learned a lot from cinematographer Hal Moore, who actually ended up impressed because she would ask him questions about his work, which a lot of actors weren't doing at the time. Uh, and by the end of filming, she had learned the effect of lighting camera angles on how she appeared on screen and how to find her best lighting, which is something she will carry with her for the rest of her career, <laughs> which I she love. She knows how to find the light. She knows how to find the light. We must starve our sight from lover's food. Till tomorrow, deep midnight. Oh, my good Lysander. You know, she starts doing, as you mentioned, minor comedies. Uh, she does Alibi Ike and The Irish in Us with James Cagney. This will not be the last time she works with James Cagney. And then Warner Brothers decides to do something a little crazy. Because of lack of success during the Great Depression... Warner Brothers decided costume films uh, that, you know, the type of stuff MGM had been doing wouldn't do that well. But they had this script for Captain Blood, which was to be directed by Michael Curtiz. Uh, and they were like, you know what? Why don't we cast a couple unknowns? That way we're not losing a ton if it fails. And so they pair Olivia de Havilland up with Errol Flynn for the first time. And this creates one of the classic on-screen pairings. Right. Uh, they they had never met each other before. Errol was a stuntman, right? Yeah. And it, it he was handsome as fuck, possibly a Nazi spy, but we won't talk about that now. Hmm. Um, and yeah, just charming and loved the camera and the camera loved him. And and I'm trying to think of like, you know, I, I guess the first um, Pirates movie had already happened after the Lord of the Rings, right? But that like, right. but if you think about like, if pirates hadn't had Johnny Depp, right? It's almost the same thing Disney did with that, with by casting Orlando Bloom and Karen Knightley, who were like not 
big budget movie leaders. And that's what they're doing with Captain Blood. Captain Blood is a swashbuckling high seas adventure in which Errol Flynn gets sold into slavery and Olivia de Havilland buys him and then he gets his freedom by becoming a pirate. And it's it also creates the classic model they will have for basically all their films where she starts <laughs> out by being like, I hate you. And right. then by the final act is like, I love you. Yeah. Classic, classic. I've seen your pirate ways. I've seen myself bargain for and fought over a combat between jackals. You pirates are used to taking what you want without the formality of purchase. I'm thief and pirate, and I'll show you how a thief and a pirate can deal. I advise you to go back to your ladies at Tortuga who are thrilled by your bow lawless ways. What matters is that now I own you as once you own me. You're mine, do you understand? Mine to do with as I please. Yeah, Captain Blood is good until it's not <laughs> there i have i have some issues i saw captain blood originally in college i had a, a teacher who loved it and i remember being like oh this is fun and i rewatched it for this and i was like this is not as fun as i remember um yeah uh but they do have the chemistry like they i'm shocked that they did not burn the nitrate film every time that they were together because yeah they, it's steamy yeah they got it and, and it's funny too because she talks about all the years, you know, the stuff like she had such a crush on him. And oh yeah, the story w- of them and their uh, like kind of missed, yeah, romantic situation is very um, suspicious. Um, we'll we'll get to her uh, other romances later, but I'll just tell this anecdote now. You know, he was married, but he was in the process of separating from his wife, and mm-hmm. in the forties, they were at a party together it was, and i thought this is going to be a scandal it's going to be something awful <laughs> and he had been very attentive and charming to me and i sort of tried to avoid all those fifty thousand photographers that were always <laughs> present with their flashlights and then afterwards we went downstairs to the coconut grove one photographer got that picture and we danced to sweet lalani they were dancing and he finally admitted to being in love with her and she told him she wouldn't do anything until he'd left his wife. And then a month later, he got back together with his wife. I know. Can you believe that? She almost had it. Um, Katy I Perry, a... the one who got away. <laughs> I have mm. another anecdote about them, but I think I'll tell it later. So Fair enough. Um, And and from there, like, you know, her, literally her career just takes off. Um, she's an well, anti- it's like she was, it was like cast in a bunch of, and like kind of what I was talking about, like, a lot of these movies where she's just like the ingenue. I mean, yes. she was so she was so young, right? She was eighteen or something. Yeah, she was. A, I mean, she was a little older now because uh, she was eighteen when she was in uh, Midsummer. But she, you know, late teens, early twenties. You know, right? And I just can't imagine. And and they're basically like, yeah, play the love interest and all these. I swear to God, I watched Anthony Adverse. I could not tell you what that movie's about. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, you know that her and Flynn do. The Charge of the Light Brigade. Um, And like you said, a lot of these are just smaller comedies. I think probably my two favorites from this era. But once again, it's just kind of the young ingenue. uh, But I loved 1937. It's Love I'm After, in which she plays sort of a foil for Leslie Howard and Betty Davis. They're both actors. She's a big fan of Leslie Howard. He, like, gets hired to... Uh, break her crush on him and it only makes her want him more. And it's one of those fun sort of ditzy roles, but it's also very quickly paced and it's got that great crackling dialogue. She's so good at it. 
And then there's also a James Whale comedy from 1937 uh, called The Great Garrick. And in it, uh, you know, uh, there's a English actor who's going to go to France, but he's insulted the French, the comedy del France. And so they've decided to teach him a lesson. And he he figures it out right away that he's basically now part of this play. They take over a hotel and try and give him like, you know, at the ultimate type of play that he's a part of, but she crashes the hotel technically. And he thinks she's also one of the actors and she actually mm. is falling in love with him. And she's bits so and skits, lots of bits. Oh, and skits. absolutely. And that movie is first of all, fucking hilarious. Uh, even for 37, like still maintains, but also she's so good. And she looks so amazing in that period, you know, uh, that like, I don't know, 17th, the 1700 France period clothing. <laughs> oh, she looks amazing. Yeah. But yeah, the, you know, most of the, most of the films in the late thirties until you start getting to the, until you get to 38, really. Right. You get Robin Hood, right? Which right. is like the big, I mean, it wasn't it like the, one of the most successful movies of the, like the year or something. Like Absolutely. So much money. Uh, this gorgeous Technicolor adaptation of The Adventures of Robin Hood, starring Errol Flynn once again as Robin Hood, uh, and uh, Basil Rathbone as uh, Guy de Gisbane, um, <laughs> or Guy de Gisbane, if you will. And I freaking love Basil Rathbone, great villain in anything. Um, also, also really good Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so I guess he is a villain. And, yeah, uh, lol. <laughs> um, and I, did, did you get it? You did get a chance to see Robin Hood. I saw Robin Hood. Yeah. Loved. I mean, the movie's what it is, you know, but I yeah. I was just like, they really said color, honey. They were like, we're paying for the Technicolor. We want costumes. We want to see like tights. It, I mean, I was like, damn. I mean, it is literally the movie that we've patterned our idea of robin hood after for so yeah. long i mean yeah. even the disney cartoon from the 50s looks like this movie yeah and so i i don't know i think it's so funny but you're right uh, the, especially my favorite costume is towards the end um king richard the lionhearted and his men come back and they're like <laughs> hiding in multicolor robes yeah with with like satin satin lining and i was just like oh did they just have those laying around right <laughs> just, when, escaping guys, from yeah, like, d- wherever d- they're escaping from disguise yourselves <laughs> did it's, you steal did you steal them from the game and squire of new york city very so? <laughs> that very that they're coordinated and they look cute you can't escape without looking cute yeah, it's a it's a genuinely fun movie, and like I don't I don't know I I love it a lot. That's another movie I'd seen before, but I rewatched it this time and had sort of the reverse reaction of Captain Blood, where I was like, oh, I'm I'm having so much more fun than I think I had. It's mm. also Michael Curtiz. You're a strange man. Strange, because I can feel for beaten, helpless people. No, you're strange because you want to do something about it. You're willing to to risk your own life. And one of those men was a Norman. Norman or Saxon? What's that matter? It's injustice I hate, not the Normans. But it's lost you your rank, your lands. It's made you a hunted outlaw when you might have lived in comfort and security. What's your reward for all this? Reward? Just don't understand. Robin Hood's a huge success. So she thinks, wow, Warner Brothers, they they really got my back and they're they're going to make me a huge star. Nope. Uh, this is like a running theme for her career, huh? She's like, okay, 
I did it. Finally, I'm here just to like be fucking, you know, one of the brothers being like, no. Yeah. They cast her in romantic comedy for a crowd in another romantic comedy hard to get. Uh, they cast her in the war movie Wings in the Navy. In 39, she does Dodge City, which is another Technicolor wonder by Michael Curtiz. It's another Errol Flynn film. I think like the um, the saloon fight seems the, like... And the saloon fight was was like a technical marvel as well for the time period. I, I was like, I cannot believe how much work, you know, goes into these things. Um, but I guess, was that her first Western? That was her first Western. I believe that was Errol Flynn's first Western. Um they still have a lot of great chemistry. He looks like, could his eyes sparkle more? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think this is a movie where you see him as like a stuntman really yeah. putting in his like work because I was like, oh my God, this movie is kind of the fight of uh, in that saloon is to me was what stood the most. She was like, fine, I'll do your Western, but let me be the saloon keeper played by Ann Sheridan. And they were like, no. So she gets yeah. stuck in the same old role again. And she later said, you know, Dodge City was a emotional low point in her career. Uh, she said she was in such a depressed state that she could hardly remember any of her lines. Mm. And so she's having a real shitty time at Warner Brothers. But luckily, David O. Selznick writes a little note uh, over to the Warner Brothers to say, hey, I'm making this little film. It's called Gone with the Wind. You may have heard of it. Everybody wants to be right. Scarlet. <laughs> um, and he's like, I'd really like Olivia in her contract uh, to come over here and play Melanie. Now, I I don't want to get into this too much because I really want to recommend that if you if you want to know more about the studio system, we've covered it extensively in our Joan Crawford episode and in our Cary Grant episode. But essentially, actors back then would get tied to these contracts and they'd be forced to basically do whatever the studio asked of them at the time. Other studios could request you on loan but you know for the most part you were tied to however many movies you'd agreed or however many years you agreed to work for a studio at first jack warner uh he said no ma'am yeah he was like "Mm -mm, mm -mm, and uh (laughs) so behind jack warner's back de havlin's like i'm gonna invite his wife to tea she takes her to tea at the brown derby I explained how much the part meant to me. And I said, would you help me? She said, I understand you, and I will help you. And it was through her that Jack eventually agreed. And he says so in his uh, biography. All the women in Hollywood wanted to be Scarlet, uh, but she wanted to be Melanie. which is the most wild fucking thing to me because Scarlet is the worst. <laughs> like I had never seen this movie before. Um, you can find my tweet thread about my viewing experience. It's a very good tweet thread. Thank you. Um, Scarlet O'Hara is just like not a good person. I don't know. Um, also Vivian Lee, who plays her, I just don't think she was like all that. You know? <laughs> oh, that's I. I don't know if I can follow you down that path. I agree. Scarlet's awful, but I just don't like, uh, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. 
I'm sorry, she doesn't have the range. She said of the role of Melanie, Melanie was someone different. She had very deeply feminine qualities that I felt were very endangered at the time. And they are from generation to generation and that somehow they should be kept alive. And that's why I wanted to interpret her role. The main thing is that she she's always thinking of the other person. And the interesting thing to me is that she was a happy person, loving, compassionate. And I think that really sums up how she plays Melanie in the movie. Uh, I didn't rewatch Gone with the Wind because I've seen it about a billion times. My mom loves that movie. Um, but I, I've i always loved her performance as Melanie. Uh, but once again, yeah. I don't Miss know. Melanie, she was, I mean, the thing that's interesting about, I mean, so her portrayal of Melanie to me, it's she was able to, you, 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 you get the sense that she's, um, even though she's always being very nice and generous, she doesn't seem naive. She's not playing the fool, you know, even though Scarlett is literally the entire movie <laughs> trying to fuck her husband yep. and like take him away. Uh, she treats Scarlett with respect and dignity. She is not going to be brought down into like the dirt and the mud of Scarlett and her fucking antics. And I find it very fucking weird that every review and every write up I read Call Scarlett O'Hara as a like high spirited woman. <laughs> Fuck that. She's a bitch. She's not a good person. And she is truly, I, I think, the best part. And and not only because she's a good person, but because you know that she is smart and she is good and she um is, you know, I, I don't know. You you don't get the sense she's being taken advantage of, which um I appreciated. Scarlett, you look the W's at the end. Wellman, Wendell, White, Whitner, Wilkins, Williams, Woolley, Wood. Scott! Get past him! Oh, he isn't there. He isn't there. Ashley's safe. He isn't listed. He's safe. He's there. Oh, Scarlett, you're so sweet to worry about Ashley like this for me. So Olivia comes off of Gone with the Wind once again being like, I'm a star. I got nominated mm-hmm. for an Academy Award. This is mm-hmm. great. Everything's going fine. And Warner Brothers was like, nope. She, yeah. she, They put her in a role in The Private Lives of Elizabeth in Essex, which is a great movie starring Betty Davis and Errol Flynn. And what happens? She's not the queen. She's playing Betty Davis's lady-in-waiting. And also right. on top of that, she is famously his love interest. She is not his love interest in this movie. <laughs> Um, um, I'm just reading uh, in the New York Times obit of her um, when she complained about these formulaic roles that kept coming. They told her that she had been hired because she photographed well and she wasn't required to act, which is a very, you know, fucking brazen and cruel thing to say to a woman who is literally bringing in so much money for this stupid fucking company and has proven herself like she's playing the game she is playing the game but they have rigged it all against her and i can i and the uh i can only imagine her frustration she, she has a number of movies that come out uh just in that short year alone my love came back raffles her next big hit really is santa fe trail and it ends up being one of the top grossing films of 1940 but she ends up missing the premiere because she starts having stomach pain and then she gets diagnosed with appendicitis and rushed into surgery. 
Well, that's um, also around the time when she started just sort of straight up refusing roles. Well, right? that's the so she has like a a very long convalescence at a Los Angeles hospital, and Warner Brothers is like, "Well, we want you in this, we want you in this," and she's like, "Nope, nope, nope, nope." Uh, she does take a role in 41 in The Strawberry Blonde. Uh, Raul Walsh directs it. She's once again up against James Cagney. That is an adorable movie. I it's like, adorable. Yeah, it's I, I like that a lot. Um, but I, I I love the character she plays in the first half of the movie. I don't know where that character goes in the second half of the movie. Right. The best part of that movie is when like they're trying to... Who does she play up against in that movie? The other woman? Uh, She's Rita Hayworth. They're so Giving good, good together. Face. Yes, <laughs> hair, body, face. Um, it's the, the best part is when they're like in the park being like, oh, we just happened to be here. We, we're not here meeting boys. And then like, of course, the boys show up and <laughs> Olivia's character is like, get the fuck over, girl. We know what we're here for like we're either yeah. in or we're out. Exactly. It's so funny. Amy. Yes, dear. If there's something in your eye, Amy, I'll help you get it out. Oh, bosh, there's nothing in my eye. I just plain and simple winked at him, that's all. No, Amy. Either he's an old friend of the family's or there's something in your eye. I never saw him before in my life until a few minutes ago when I passed Fisher's drugstore. Oh, Amy, he followed you here? No. I followed him. Oh, Amy. That film, huge critical commercial success. She goes on to be in Mitch Leeson's Hold Back the Dawn with Charles Boyer. And... This is, you know, sort of where she starts to find herself. She plays, you know, a teacher while in Mexico who feels uh, drawn to Charles Boyer's character. He's a sophisticated European gigolo. And it's it's like very much a sexual awakening. And he marries her as like a scheme to get across the border into the U.S. because Back in the day, and I don't want to get too deep into it, but there was a quota system about how many people could come from a certain country in the U.S., and the Romanian uh, quota was very, very small, and so he would have had to wait in Mexico essentially for eight years, which is why it's frustrating when people say nowadays, like, why don't people just do it the legal way? Because even though the quotas are much bigger now, sometimes there are people who are still on waiting lists for like 10 to 15 years. I digress. She falls in love with this man. She finds out he might be a louse. They they get kind of back together and whatnot. And she gets her second Academy Award nomination, this time for Best Actress for this mm-hmm. movie. She does John Huston's In This Our Life, which I just want to bring up because it's a, a, another film that she does with Betty Davis. And there's a scene in it where she like looks at a portrait and she's like talking about betty davis she got the looks of the family and i like and it, it killed me because i love betty davis and i think betty davis is a beautiful beautiful woman but like up against olivia de Havilland, like, yeah <laughs> um, well, also betty famously thought she was right herself was not a looker if right. you will um but uh but I, I also want to mention that movie because there there is some actually like really good race relations stuff in that movie um, and I don't know how much of a hand Olivia de Havilland had in it, but I did read something that she sort of pushed for those scenes to be beefed up. And because John Huston was the was the director, he he sort of really let that go. But it also didn't hurt that she was fucking him at the time and continued to do so for three years. So, never hurts. Never hurts. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't think there's a lot of movies from that era in which they discuss blackness and the way black people are treated. Um 
that are as interesting as that movie. Mm. And it's a, it's a small part of the film, but it's, it's worth looking into for that. This is also the time though. Like when she starts refusing roles, Warner brothers is like, um, they, they're literally um, suspending her and yeah. they're finding her, you know, for all this time, essentially like, that they've allegedly quote unquote lost. Right. When she's declining these movies, um, which I guess is this building up, this impending big blow up that's about to happen. Oh, because it, it is about to happen. It, yeah. And it's about to happen. And, and, and it's wild. It's like, she has this like second nomination. She's like even more emboldened to be like enough because essentially at her, she was, I think on contract for seven years and it had come to an end and they were like, nice try bitch. Uh, all those suspensions, you were putting an extra six months on your contract. And she said, mm, I don't think so, honey. She's no longer putting up with this. She's not going to do her extension. She tells Warner Brothers no. Um, and on advice from her lawyer, Martin Gang, uh, she files suit against Warner Brothers in Los Angeles County Superior Court to seek a declaratory judgment that she was no longer bound by her contract because there was an existing section of the California Labor Code that forbade an employer from enforcing a contract against an employee for longer than seven years from the date of the first performance. And Superior Court was like, gotta hand it to her. You're like, well, <laughs> you got us there, gal. <laughs> and I had six months of suspension time to go. And yet was being suspended on extension time. So it could go on forever, could have gone on for many years like that. You couldn't work at all at anything, anything at all, because the contracts were for exclusive personal services. The court case lasted about a year, but they it landed in her favor. And it ended up being one of the most significant and far-reaching legal rulings in Hollywood because it really reduced the power of the studios. As we mentioned, studio system, you're locked in. And this was the actors finally standing up for themselves to say, no, we, we are performers. Uh, we deserve creative freedom in our line of work. California's resulting seven-year rule is still actually known as the de Havilland Law. A lot of people call it that. So Hollywood actually owes her a great deal. Um, oh, yeah. But it did cost her a lot. It cost her $13,000, which uh, in in last year would have cost about $190,000 in legal fees. But she was very respected by her peers. And even her own sister, whom they were still fighting, uh, <laughs> said Hollywood owes Olivia a great deal. The, Didn't she not work for a while? And here we go. And and Jack Warder is like, not so fast. And he blacklists her. And essentially he he basically tells every studio do not work with her she is difficult she is a lady that you do not want on your sets and for three years she does not do another film wow um she takes the time to become a naturalized citizen i guess you're not working gotta do something (laughs) um but but just called up all his girls and said do not trust this fugly (laughs) slut she (laughs) is a bitch he wrote her name in the burn book Mm-hmm. And it passed it around to everyone at the school. Uh, that's how that movie ends, right? Anyway. Yep. <laughs> and they all side with her. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, t- she she gets naturalized 10 days before we enter World War II. Uh, so what she ends up doing with a lot of that time is she ends up doing USO tours. But now that I was enjoined from working, I was free. And the USO asked me, they said, you can't sing and you can't dance. Uh 
could you, would you consider visiting our military patients in military hospitals in the Christmas season of 1943? And I said, oh yes, I certainly would. She joins the Hollywood Victory Canteen, and really she's helping raise money for the troops through war bonds and and entertaining the troops while at war. Uh, She said later in life, I love doing those tours because it was a way I could serve my country and contribute to the war effort. So in 1945, blacklisting virtually gone. Uh, Court of Appeals done. She takes a role in Michael Leeson's To Each His Own. Michael Leeson was the director of Hold Back the Dawn. And when she got this script for For Each His Own, she was like, I want to work with Michael Leeson. And here's why. And I think this is very important. Um, Michael Leeson treated her like an actor. He Mm. asked her questions about who she was and what she was doing, why her character would feel that way. And she said, you know, a lot of the other act, well, a lot of the other directors she'd worked with, um, you know, even Michael Curtiz were basically like smile. Right. (laughs) And, and, and so she knew this was a director she could trust that she'd worked with really well. And so she selects him to direct to each his own, to each his own is a movie. As I mentioned, 1946, she plays an unwed mother, uh, who after one night stand gives a child up for uh, adoption? Kind of. She like basically kind leaves of. leaves the child, um, and then it gets adopted by uh, a sort of romantic rival of hers, and it she basically it destroys her life. She spends the rest of her life becoming sort of embittered and trying right. to get her child back. It's like a, kind of like an error type thing. Like she wants to give it up, but like it'll get come to her. And then they're like, oh, no, well, we give it to this family because they lost. So, like, she doesn't, like, want to give up this child. She just doesn't want to have the, like, drama of it all. She's intending to somehow get it back. It doesn't work out. And then she tries to get it back later. And it's the whole thing. She also plays, like, 30 years of this woman's life, right? Yes. Yeah, she she plays young and old in the film. She is olded up in the, the movie has some flashback situation going on. I think at the beginning of the movie, I was like, oh, my gosh, they, she's in some old age makeup right now. Um, and and it's good old age. I mean, it's yeah. a little it's it's makeup like it's very clearly makeup. But but I think she is so good at that, though, because I, I she has um, different ranges. And we're going to see in and especially in her upcoming movies where she's able to, like, turn up her like he 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 i'm a cutesy girl charm and then turn in the stern kind of like hardened woman yes uh, um and so she has that range and she really flexes those muscles um especially in this movie what are you gonna tell corinne judy i'll tell her he's mine i'll tell everybody he's mine no you won't judy oh i know this is awful for you i'm not thinking of me in my state of health the scandal won't matter to me not for long but if you're worried about me and my reputation you're grown up i'm not thinking of you i'm thinking of that baby he's mine i've got a share in him too he's my grandson and he's not going to suffer for your fault he's not going to be brought up a marked child if the people of this town so much as suspect he's yours that little fellow's life won't be worth living i can't give him up you've got to no. It wasn't my favorite movie, but like I was definitely impressed oh, by her performance. I lo- I'll be honest, I I loved it. I wa- I had never seen it before. Um I was in tears by the end. I oh. thought her performance was so moving and so genuine. Um and I don't know. I w- I was really impressed by it. I was I was like, "Damn. She she's it's, she's got it." It's and- definitely like the classic Hollywood like 
feel good. Yeah. Coming, finally breaking through, doing the thing. And and I was just kind of proud of the fact that they were talking about like, you know, the social mores at the time. It was sort of like, is her child better off being raised by somebody else because she would have been a single mother? Or, right. you know, or was she better off? Because she certainly wasn't. And like, she ends up doing the right thing because she gets him back at one point. She essentially blackmails her right. his his adoptive parents to giving her and then he's unhappy and she spends her entire life trying to make him happy and it ruins her and it's like should society be able be allowed to destroy a woman's entire life just because she slept with a man she thought she was in love with and then he died right you know i i don't know i i was impressed by that because i feel like there's not as many um uh there's there's not there's once again, it's deeper than I was expecting for the time period. Um, yeah, I will say, though, the ending, though, like with, and this is not a spoiler, but like there's a man who she's telling the story to. And yeah. he kind of in the end is like, oh, bippity boppity boop. <laughs> Let's just take care of a couple of things. There are a lot of good moments in this movie. And I am I think her performance is really good. And the story is really well done. But there, it's still like an aged 1946 movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do want to say about her acting style. So as we mentioned, she was never formally trained as an actor. Uh, so she she ends up reading Stanislavski's autobiography, My Art, My Life in Art, and she decided, you know, this time I'm gonna I'm gonna go method. And I love I love this story about how she went method for this. She used a different perfume for the different parts of her life. I love that. Oh. <laughs> She said, young me would wear curve, (laughs) but when I grow up, I would wear Elizabeth Arden. Um, I don't know. I just made up fucking things. Um, White Diamonds by Liz Taylor. These have always brought me luck. Um, But uh, it pays off because this is finally her Academy Award. She Mm -hmm. wins Best Actress at the 1946 Oscars. This will be her first Oscars. And... It's sort of seen as a culmination of her struggle to be respected and and to yeah. be rewarded for a good work. Now, we mentioned the feud with her sister. Um, it only gets worse. The 1942 Academy Awards, Olivia de Havilland was nominated for Hold Back the Dawn. Uh, as we mentioned, it was her first Best Actress nomination. She was up against her sister, Joan Fontaine, for Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion. Mm-hmm. Joan Fontaine wins yes she does and this is like reignition just like nope not not gonna not gonna fuck with her whatever so when olivia wins her award for teach his own (laughs) joan goes to congratulate her and she fucking ignores her well, because th- didn't she not talk to her when yes. she won? Yeah. So, yeah. like, it was kind of like, well, you didn't say congrats to me, and <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't say JK. Like, it's very that. Um, exactly. Also, I wanted to mention quickly, so is it, I don't know if you know this or not, but I think I read that Joan Fontaine goes by Joan Fontaine because Warner was like, we can only have one to have land yes. in in uh, Hollywood. See, I read it was, and this is the problem with doing doing this, but like I read it was her mother who was like, oh. we can only have one to Havlin. And so, but uh, but she I also read that Joan Fontaine said that when she was trying to get a movie contract, uh, she was like, You can't go to Warner Brothers, that's Olivia's studio. Yeah. So. 
<laughs> and oh god, which is just, like so, so crazy. Just pitting them against each other, right? Um, uh, but yeah, so we're in 1946. You know, Olivia has fucking slain big Hollywood, and she's now like proudly holding on to her first Oscar statuette, and and yet still has this nasty feud going on with her sister, who is like, hmm, oh, you finally got one. That's cute. Uh, in in forty six, she also does Dark Mirror, in which she plays twin sisters, which was a big oh thing my, back then. Oh my god! Um, Betty Davis did it twice, so like, yeah, uh, people love that sort Dark of thing. Dark Mirror, which is just like <laughs> one of the twins is evil, so that's just how that is. So watch <laughs> yep, out! Exactly, they're just an evil twin. That's that's how the cookie crumbles. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> twins are bad. Later that year, she was appearing in a summer stock theater production of What Every Woman Knows. Uh, and she begins dating Marcus Goodrick, who is a U.S. Navy veteran, a journalist, and an author. And they marry each other in August 26 of 1946. Uh, in 48, she does one of her most challenging performances. Uh, she's in the movie The Snake Pit, in which she plays a schizophrenic woman who is in a mental hospital. And I really like this movie. I, th- I think her performance is, is really pretty great you know she she to try and get into character um she consulted with psychiatrists um and she did you know simulated electric shock and hydrotherapy to to try and feel what a person would feel um in this situation and i I think it's a surprisingly i mean there's some stuff there's like an evil nurse Mm -hmm. um but i (laughs) i think there's i once again i think it's a much more delicate portrayal of it you know this was basically the first um realistic portrayal of a person with a mental issue like this that was handled seriously in a hollywood film right and also it was handled well she's this character is able to go get treated and be released. You know, she had, it's not like, well, she, you know, is a psycho person and she'll be that way forever. It was like, no, she is going and getting treated and she's able to overcome, you know, or or not overcome, but maybe um, is able to uh, deal with these, you know, issues uh, of mental illness. It wasn't like this life sentence of like, and they locked her up forever. Yes. And, you know, she said, I met a young woman that was very much like Virginia about the same age and physical description, as well as being schizophrenic with guilt problems. What struck me most of all was the fact that she was rather likable and appealing. It hadn't occurred to me before that a mental patient could be appealing. And it was that it was that that gave me the key to the performance. And people agreed. New York Film Critics Circle uh, gave her the award for Best Actress, Academy Award nominee again for best actress so she's just racking up those nominations and those awards and that really culminates in 1949 in william wyler's the heiress the heiress which is based off of a play of the same name and also the henry james novel washington square is about uh, a young woman who lives with an overbearing father she's set to inherit a lot of money she's very naive uh doesn't doesn't believe herself to be beautiful and she sort of falls under. It's not even that she doesn't believe she's beautiful. Her dad doesn't think she's beautiful. Yeah, her dad. Well, that's the thing is she, you know, her dad's the genuinely a terrible human being. She falls in love with Montgomery Cliff, and you spend the whole movie sort of wondering: Does he love her for her money, or does he love her in general? Uh, which is funny because apparently it's much more clear in the play, and the studio was like, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, Montgomery Cliff is a heartthrob. Make it a little more vague." And I think the movie is much better because it's a little more vague. Oh, it's it's. 
the entire time I was like, oh God, is it, is he lying or is, is he yeah. like for real? And I just kept thinking like, in the end, what is the lesson? Is is the lesson the, mov- the movie's trying to tell us is like, listen to your dad and don't blah. Or is it like, follow your heart and love. And it's just like, you just, it, it really ratches it up. And she does this like really weird thing or not weird thing, but she has like a really like kind of sweet, tiny voice at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And then by the end of it, it like she just lowers it all the way down <laughs> and it turns really like fucking hard. Ugh. And this is another movie that she does like the role, like a 30 year performance. And so, yeah, it's it's a lot. It is a you know, if if you're not in the mood to watch The Heiress, which you really should, you can always Google Carol Burnett's The Lady Heir. <laughs> and there's Perfect. a parody version of it by Carol Burnett. It's very worth your time. Um, but uh, that gets her her second Academy Award. She mm-hmm. wins again for Best Actress. Your award for to each his own. I took as an incentive to venture forward. Thank you for this very generous assurance that I have not entirely failed to do so. And then she takes some time off to have a kid. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, you have two Oscars, I guess, now. Time for a kid. Yeah, I'm being blasé. She wins, you know, the film New York Film Critics Circle Award, the Golden Globe Award, it's it's a big deal for her career um and you know she follows it up by having a child her son um and then turns down blanche dubois in a streetcar named desire yeah. uh, uh she said Did she, she couldn't she relate to like, the character I a, I, and you I'm know a, what yeah i'm a mother now i'm a mother now i can't do it mm. yep exactly um in 1950 uh she moved her family to new york city and she makes one of the weirdest fucking decisions in her entire career she decides to take the role of Juliet in Romeo and Juliet on Broadway. She had always wanted to play Juliet. Um, it opened to mixed reviews because she was 35 fucking years old. <laughs> so like. <laughs> oh, um, a spry 35. Exactly. Uh, it closes after 45 performances. But, you know, she was like, no, I'm going to I'm going to conquer the stage. And so she does George Bernard Shaw's Candide um, in 52 that one ends up going on for a, a ton of sold out performances. So she, at re- the end she gets the last laugh, but I, I still just can't imagine. This is also like after all that, she's like, you know what? I'm done with Hollywood. Doesn't she like leave to Paris? Yep. Yeah. She divorces uh, her husband. She travels to the Cannes film festival at the invitation of the French government. And yeah, she ends up moving there. Uh, she meets Pierre Galante, uh, mm. who's an executive uh, editor for French journal Paris Match. They marry, and, you know, she she settles there. She she starts, but that doesn't deter her from working. She right. ends up doing Terrence Young's That Lady, which she plays a one-eyed Spanish princess who lost mm. her eye in a, in a sword fight over the love right. of King Philip II of Spain. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she does not as a stranger in 55, the ambassador's daughter in 56, uh, both were not great. Uh, but she does have her second child, Giselle Galante, who was born in 1956. She ends up doing the light in the Piazza in 62. And if, if you're catching on to this, um, she's, she's slowing down. She's not doing as much and she doesn't really have to. Um, and in 62, it's sort of 
in a way that seems to keep herself busy, but ends up getting great reviews. She writes her first book, and this book is called Every Frenchman Has One. And it's sort of a, it's like her being funny about um, French like life and how she adapted. Yeah. American in France. Um, yeah, didn't she just like end up falling in love with Europe and was yeah. like, I, and this is like also though maybe the, you know, the trip that her mother never and and them never got to finish when they were you know on that boat to like california i hadn't thought of that that's so sweet she finally gets there and turns out she's like everyone everything's here is just so much like nicer and fancier and like more her like um what she enjoys i think i read somewhere that she like really just enjoyed like the cobblestone streets and like (laughs) everything was real there not like the artifice of hollywood um and you know what? I love that for her. And I think that kind of also leads to this mystique of her. I mean, she dies in Paris. She does yeah. ends up not leaving. She stays there. And actually, I will say that's what made this episode a little harder because there's not a lot of um, filmed interviews with her because no. she didn't. She, once she moved to Paris, she sort of stopped playing the Hollywood game. She's done a kind of a handful of retrospective interviews, um, things that are more towards the end of her life. But, you know, outside of a couple episodes of Password, there wasn't a ton of of interviews with her, which was which was a little frustrating because I try to include as many sound clips as I can. And, and hopefully I, I'm doing a good job at that. To learn about another culture and other people is an immense privilege and an exciting adventure. Not only that, but just living in Europe has been an extraordinary extraordinary experience because I have been living in a culture of peace. Those 19-year-old American boys, Omaha Beach and up and down that coast, they didn't die for nothing. Think of it, Europe with all these different countries, each country separate from the other in terms of history, culture, language, all of them for 2,000 years and more at war with each other. War is a very stupid way to settle a disagreement. Unthinkable, bestial, won't do. And in Europe, you have the feeling that the whole human race has been raised to another level. In 64, she heads into uh, a, a period that we brought up in, in the Joan Crawford episode, and it's the, the Hagsploitation era. Yeah. Um, in yeah. 64, she does Walter Grauman's Lady in a Cage, which is a thriller in which she's a woman trapped in an elevator in one of those cage elevators in her home because she had it installed because she broke her hip. Um, and... Uh, she she's trapped in between floors and her house gets invaded by criminals. Um, the, it was a box office success. Uh, so really, yeah, nothing to shake a stick at, but the critics savaged it. Time magazine even went so far as saying it's very clear that Olivia would rather be remembered as a, as a freak than forgotten. Yeah. And the movie is crazy. (laughs) I was like, 
I, I I don't even I don't even know. It's it's clearly is like going for like this style, yeah. But also like just like the politics policies of it are so weird. It's almost like youths and like people who drink are invading the suburbs. No, I will give it more credit because two reasons. One, I have always told anyone who would listen i would love to remake this movie this is on oh. my list of like movies to remake and but two one of the things i really love about it because i agree with you on the surface it does really feel like that i think there's a couple choice lines from her character that really reveal i mean a choice it's not just from her character it's also from her son she's not a good person either and it's an mm. interesting it's an interesting movie because you're watching a movie full of kind of bad people does she deserve the treatment she's getting absolutely not those no. those those kids are monsters and right it led by james Kahn. it was his very first movie he's doing brando from streetcar oh yeah i've been some kind of inside since i was uh nine years old oh i see you're one of the many bits of awful produced by the welfare state you're what so much of my tax dollars goes for the care and feeding of well, um, I don't know if I'm awful, but yeah, yeah. And, and I sure do want to thank you, man, for all them tax dollars. The food is lousy, though. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, she's also maybe not great. And I think what's interesting about that is she's never going to come out of this situation better. Like, her character arc in that movie is she's only going to be worse. She's right. going to use this as an example of oh, everything that she's been terrified of her entire life. And I think that's a weirdly fascinating thing to make a movie about. Um, she's a Facebook mom who's ready to rage. Yeah, like. exactly. She's the type of person that's like, that comments on, a, you know, a Facebook thing with, quote, peaceful protests. Right, And right. that's, you know. Yeah, exactly that, that. The whole idea of, like, being like, these are welfare kids and they are bad. I just don't like the policies of like showing like, it'd be one thing if there are kids who, you know, yeah, had uh, circumstances that like, but like, I don't know, like just show it, it was very like, look at these hoodlums. Right. And it's like, in what fucking world? Like I no no, no. <laughs> and also I was like, ma'am, you are in between like the second and third floor. A quick tumble down to the first floor would not kill you. It's so funny, too. The The guy that wrote the movie had to remove references to the fact that it was New York City uh, because he <laughs> found out every elevator in New York City has an emergency telephone, including private wow. ones. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> the movie has to, like, jump through, like, you know, oh, all yeah. these hoops to be like, and then this didn't work. I mean, not this. literally Anne Southern is in the movie, and she disappears because they lock her in a closet, and she's never mentioned again. Mm -hmm. I don't want to belabor the point of Lady in a Cage, but I, I do think it's, like, weirdly fascinating. She goes on from that to star in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte with, it's so hard to say, everybody at home, don't try it. Uh, she, she stars in it with <laughs> Betty Davis. She's replacing Joan Crawford, who's quote-unquote ill. Uh, we discussed this in our Joan Crawford episode, but I will say she's so fucking good. And I've seen this movie so many times. She's so fucking good. She's so fucking evil. And she also gets to be present for maybe Betty Davis's like crowning achievement as an actor, which is <laughs> Betty Davis being so happy she gets to say bitch on film. Yes, I told you. And I told your father, too. Why wouldn't I? After all, I wasn't much more than a child then. And all I ever got in this house was people telling me how lucky I was. And your father always favoring you and holding you up as an example. Why wouldn't I tell him that his pure, darling little girl was having a dirty little affair with a married man? You're a 
down, Sarah, little bitch! To be in that room. Um, <laughs> and then mostly ends up, you know, she does The Swarm, which is a, a big budget disaster movie. She ends up doing a lot of TV. She does Roots, The Next Generation. Um, she makes her final film appearance in, in the movie called The Fifth Musketeer in 1979. She plays Queen Anne and she's liter- she has two lines and she's in two scenes and I watched that entire fucking movie and I was very angry. Um, the, uh, and she gets a Golden Globe for Anastasia, The Mystery of Anna in 1986 in which she plays Dowager Empress Maria. And then her final film appearance anywhere is the HTV romantic TV film, The Woman He Loved, uh, which I watched as well, and wow. is like a glowing portrait of Wallace Simpson, the woman that uh, the Prince of Wales abdicated his throne for, um, and like totally leaves out the fact that she was a Nazi sympathizer and he was also a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, but that's come, fine. Come. <laughs> um, Olivia de Havilland plays Aunt Bessie Merriman. And she's, she's, uh, it's not going to be my one star view. So I just want to get it out of the way out of all of the Southern accents she had to do in her entire career. The worst Southern accent, like, like just a Wallace. Why? Why are you marrying him? Like, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I'm uh, happy to report that I, I stopped watching after Lady in a Cage. So. Oh, did you? Did you? I, I don't blame you. Um. And and from there, like every like every other accolade she gets is about her career. Uh, 2003, she was a presenter at the 75th Academy Awards. Oh. Um, in 2008, uh, at the age of 92, she received the National Medal of the Arts, which is the highest honor conferred to an individual artist on behalf of the people of the United States. George W. Bush gave that to her. So sorry that she had to. So sorry. Yeah, she was a lifelong Democrat, so I'm sure she was like, great. Um, <laughs> Thanks. I, you can uh, mail it to me. <laughs> um, on September 9th of 2010, she was appointed Chevalier, which is uh, a knight and the Legion of Honor, which is the highest decoration in France, awarded by President Nicolas Sarkozy. He ended up telling the actress, you honor France by having chosen us, which I think is really sweet. Cute. Um, and in June 2017, two weeks before her 101st birthday, she was appointed Dame Commander in the Order of the British Empire uh, by Queen Elizabeth II. She's the oldest woman to ever receive that honor, and she said it was the most gratifying of birthday presents. <laughs> Casual. I mean, when you're 102 and the sister you hate has already died, yeah, it's like, you know, what else can you get? What else can you ask for? In terms of her personal life, we mentioned her husband's. Um, she also had a romantic relationship with Jimmy Stewart. She was involved with Howard Hughes. Uh, she said, as I mentioned before, that John, she was... Uh, had a three-year relationship with John Houston. She said about John Houston, he was the man I wanted to marry. The anecdote about Errol Flynn I wanted to share was while she was shooting the movie The Swarm, she told Michael Caine that Errol Flynn once made a $100 bet in the 40s that he could have sex with her. And then she later went and showed him the spot in the Hollywood Hills in which he won that bet. Wow. (laughs) Feisty lady. Stop. (laughs) Um... As I as I mentioned before, she was uh, a lifelong uh, liberal, though she drew the line at those communists. And she did actually in 1958 uh, in 
in a private meeting before the House of Un-American Activities recounted uh, her experiences with the Independent Citizens Committee, who she thought were a little too far left. So, no, no one is perfect, uh, but I do think it's important to be like, you know, she considered herself a righteous crusader and then was also like, no, I'm going to tell tales. Well, also, I bet you, I mean, she was very, you know, support the troops, rah, yeah. rah, rah. And yeah. also, I think she clearly, I mean, I don't think it was an act that she was, you know, this high, you know, society woman like she was. And so I think part of that was obviously being very... um pro the government and doing the quote right american thing or what the fuck ever um but yeah i think it's uh a career and just like a life of you know she fought really hard fights um and yeah shaped hollywood into what it is now i think her best work literally came out of that struggle yeah you know it's like the late 40s until the early 50s right after she had been like blacklisted and outcast from hollywood she came back just like fucking burning through hollywood and she did four or five movies i'd say from like what to from tahija's own to like uh, the heiress maybe my cousin rachel and then she was like you know what i'm going to new york and doing theater that i've always wanted to do i'm a 35 year old juliet i don't care and then she fucking says peace and goes to Paris. Like, I don't know a more iconic, like, kind of being like, peace. I fucking told you guys. Right. And, I'm out. And, and that's what I love about her is she's like, I did the thing. I, I yeah. did it. Like, I don't need to. And that's, I think, what's sort of frustrating. And, it, and it's, I mean, there was also, we've talked about this and it still goes on. There's also also a law of diminishing returns when it comes to Hollywood and women aging. Oh yeah. And for sure. I, I think it's very telling that within like six years of doing the ambassador's daughter in which she's playing like the young flighty love interest of a character, she's playing the mom in the light in the Piazza. And suddenly they've just decided she's like too old to be the, to be the young ingenue again. And not that I would want to see her playing the ingenue. I was glad she moved on from that, but it's just, it's frustrating that 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 decision gets made that suddenly you're over that imaginary hill. And I like the fact that she was like, I don't need this. I don't yeah. have to do this. Right. And I've made my money. I've made my mark. And I'm just I'm going to go now. We mentioned the feud with her sister um, after she divorced her first husband. They started talking to each other again. They ended up even spending Christmas together in 61. Unfortunately, they started disagreeing over their mother's cancer treatment. Joan Fontaine believed her mother wanted to die. And Olivia de Havilland was like, I will fucking pay anything I can to keep her alive. And Mm. so they stopped talking to each other again. And then their mother died. And Fontaine claimed that de Havilland hadn't told her that her mother had died. Uh, But the truth is that de Havilland had sent her a telegram. It just took two weeks to get there. Mm. Um, in they still didn't talk to each other all the way up to Fontaine's death. In fact, uh, I read reports that Fontaine stopped talking to her daughters because they would talk to Olivia de Havilland. <sighs> That's right. I think I read that too. Yeah. Um. So in 2013, uh, December 15th, Joan Fontaine died, and de Havilland said it was she was shocked and saddened, and that's I think that's the true like, yeah, best wishes. <laughs> you know, have a good summer. Um, 
But uh, the other feud I wanted to talk about was the, you know, as an amazing final act, uh, Ryan Murphy creates a TV show called Feud, Betty and Joan, in which he casts Catherine Zeta-Jones to play Olivia de Havilland. <laughs> I don't know in what world. And, <laughs> I don't know this man. <laughs> yeah. And Olivia de Havilland, uh, right before her 101st birthday, filed a lawsuit against FX Network and Ryan Murphy for inaccurately portraying her and using her likeness without permission. Um FX tried to, uh, you know, strike the suit, basically saying it was a slap lawsuit. Uh, but it went through. But then she ended up losing on appeal. A three justice panel from the California Court of Appeals, the second district, ruled against the defamation suit, um, which I think is a little strange because I've I've heard of I've heard of people being like parody, but this wasn't parody. This was literally them putting the words in the mouth of somebody who's living, right? And um, because and her like statement i thought was that very factual she was like i purposely stayed out of this kind of gossip when i was in hollywood this Mm. was not my thing yeah i think it's probably just hard when it comes to like defamation like they're like well did you lose anything like monetarily did you lose jobs it's like nothing it was so not to say that ryan murphy is right but i think in the eyes of the law it's like i but it is strange that he made money using her name i don't think it was definitely I don't think it was defamation, but I think it's definitely like, bitch, that's my likeness and that's my name. You like, maybe they saw Captain Zeta Jones and they're like, well, he didn't get likeness down. So, (laughs) (laughs) wow, drag. But but as you mentioned, yeah, uh, I think one of my favorite things about Olivia de Havilland is that she spent her life doing it her own way. And when people told her no, she was like, no. I'm yeah. I'm I'm not going to accept that as the answer. I'm going to find a way around. And and I think that's what really makes her great and makes her a legendary star. And with that, I think we should move into our picks. Let's do it. My one-star review is a little film and by little I mean insanely long movie from 1978 called The Swarm. Mm, okay. Uh, this is one of Olivia's last films, and I can understand why. Uh, the Swarm is a film. Uh, it is a um, Irwin Allen film. We've mentioned Irwin Allen before because in our Sally Field episode, we talked about Beside- Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, which I'm pretty sure was my one-star review there, too. I think it was. Uh, this is a disaster film about killer bees coming uh. and attacking. Yeah, and it's one of those, like bloated murder hornets <laughs> yeah exactly it's murder hornets the prequel um it it's one of those overstuffed overpacked overcast films the lead is michael kane everybody else that's in it's Catherine ross richard widmark richard chamberlain olivia de Havilland, ben johnson lee grant jose ferrer patty duke slim pickens bradford dillman fred mcmurray in his final role and henry fonda in fact uh michael kane was once saying um you know, I was in the swarm, but so was Henry Fonda. Why do I keep getting blamed for it? <laughs> um, we were all there. <laughs> we were all there. Uh, I don't know how to get too much into this because it's as ridiculous as it sounds. Like, essentially, killer bees have come and they, they like, take over a military base first and then they, like, kill a town. And then Are they... you telling me that the bees take over the military base? Yep. Like, by killing everybody in it. They, they're they not, like, pressing buttons. Right? Okay, I was like, <laughs> yeah. that, that bee has a gun. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of seeds where after people get stung, they hallucinate giant bees. And I was like, I don't need this, Irwin Allen. <laughs> um, but, uh... The 
I made the mistake, too, of the copy I found was the 156-minute extended cut, literally a film longer than 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, Michael Caine is is like the expert, but he's also a badass and like the government can't tell him what to do. He knows about the bees. I also think it's a weird point of contention that at one point he holds a press conference and this one guy's like, why do you keep calling them specifically African bees? We don't like they could be Brazilian. Like you keep referring to them as African and then talking about American honeybees. And he's like, it doesn't matter what we call them and then continues to call them African. So it's very much like a racial thing. (laughs) It's very China virus. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Olivia Havlin plays the school superintendent, Maureen Schuster in the town. And she's caught in a love triangle between retiree Felix Austin played by Ben Johnson and town mayor and drugstore owner, Clarence Tuttle played by Fred McMurray. And so they have this weird love triangle plot that's playing out as these killer bees are attacking their town. Um, There's an amazing scene where she's like screaming over the microphone to get everybody inside because the killer bees are attacking. And as that's happening, there's like children dying outside and she like runs into a classroom where all these kids are screaming and she's like, why? Why? And she does one of the funniest things in cinema history, which she looks out the window, sees the dead bodies, turns around to the camera and lets out like a moan of ecstasy. Uh It doesn't it doesn't feel like she's like scared or sad. She's like, she made a choice. She said, maybe not a scream this time. Maybe a grunt, a passionate grunt. Attention, this is Miss Schuster. Please listen very carefully. A swarm of killer bees is coming this way. I want every teacher and every student to close off whatever area you may be in at this very moment. And I feel bad picking something so close to the end of her career. But I think, you know, at that point, she's not really being offered the roles that she wants. And she mm-hmm. she's really just going along for the ride. And I think she mentally was like, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to bring it today. She was like that that song that occasionally goes around Twitter where she's like, I don't want to do the work today. I don't really, really oh want to do, do the work that's from? Do you know where that's from? I do. I do. I'm playing dumb. But I <laughs> I was like, I love that show. And that's what it feels like. And she ends up dying maybe an hour and a half into the movie. So then I still sat around and watched the next nine years of it. Uh, but... <laughs> But she dies in the most ridiculous way, which is they load everybody that survived from the town onto the train. Okay. Um, and they let the train. And she's having a conversation with her two loves about her love triangle. And a bee gets into the conductor's apartment and he tries to kill it. And when he does, the bees swarm and the train falls off the track and explodes. What? <laughs> yes. Everybody the- dies in a train explosion. I'm tired of these motherfucking bees on this motherfucking train. I could see it being a fun, like, put it on at a bar or something or in the background at a party because there's just enough bees attack attacks that it might be entertaining. <laughs> but yeah, uh, another small anecdote. And then I will let you do your one star review. Uh, they had to hire uh, a group of people to remove the stingers from the bees so they would be able to attack the actors. Um, and uh, Olivia de Havilland was one of the only people on set stung by a bee. Wait, but don't bees die once you take the stinger you out? You can clip them. 
they weren't removing them they were clipping them imagine having that job clipping b fucking <laughs> stingers for like a movie god kill me it's a living it's a living um okay my one star review is actually on the way opposite end of her career i chose 1938's four is a crowd um four is a crowd is a romantic comedy it's also directed by uh, michael curtis who we mentioned a lot he worked a lot with olivia um also starring errol flynn it was their fourth collaboration together um it also stars rosalind russell and patrick knowles um I think Rosalind Russell actually is very excellent in this movie. I love Rosalind Russell. She's so great. Yeah. She is like just giving you like the real <laughs> sensation, shoulder, 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 like sassy Bob the entire time. Um, but I, I, the movie's like ridiculous and it's, uh, I will say they look so fucking hot. The, the, the end, like the beginning of this movie is just them walking down New York, like hand in hand. And they're just like live, laugh, laughing while like the <laughs> credits roll. And I'm like, okay, they look fucking hot. But okay, so Olivia plays Lori, who is um, the granddaughter of like this big businessman in New York. Um, the movie centers around um, uh, Errol Flynn's character, who is like a PR dude who used to work at a newspaper. The new guy who owns the newspaper fired him and is thinking of closing the paper down altogether. Um, shenanigans, shenanigans. Um, the main reason I chose this is because this is like key classic Olivia de Havilland. Just like, I can see the pain and agony behind her eyes playing this dumb, dumb bitch. Like (laughs) she literally is just like giving you the most silly Billy child, um, like, Oh, I'm just a little girl and I want, don't you love me? And it's like, and these four people, they all like Errol Flynn's character gets in this like love triangle between the two of these women. And uh, and then there's this fourth guy also. He's like, see, isn't that bad? I the, the plot is very loosey goosey. Like, I'm going to put you in the papers and make news happen and money. It's 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 really unimportant. All you have to know essentially is that. Lori is this granddaughter of this big money dude and he and she just is it's like a waste of her talent and I also just could feel this is around the same time um the late 30s where she is just like desperate desperate I mean it's the same it's the the year before Dodge City so she was depressed and just like having the worst time you know and it just Uh, reflected on screen well if you think i'm gonna stand by and see you make love to another woman you're mistaken if that's your idea of an engagement huh but darling don't you see it's for the happiness of both of us my sweet well i guess it is if you look at it that way i guess i can trust you you've been all right so far i'll cooperate that's the girl and then you have her next to Rosalind, who is just giving you a little bit more like that character is just like beefier, meatier, more interesting than just being like the ditzy, like, who oh, me? Don't you love me? It's it's very baby, sexy baby, Ugh. which we famously hate. Yeah. Errol Flynn ha- had tried to, you know, ask Jack Warner to like put him in non actiony movies. Um, and so he put him in this, and the movie was a big flop. But and then in this movie, they even still make him like run around like crazy. Dogs <laughs> are chasing after him. He bites a dog like literally bites a dog um and i was like 
is I maybe girl just like stay in your lane. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, my pick is 1938's Four is a Crowd. Um, just not, just not. You could tell Olivia was ready to go. She was ready to fucking bust out. Was there anything else you saw that you didn't particularly like? Um, like I mentioned, Anthony Adverse. I don't know this man. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I felt like the longest move of my life. Also, a lot of like poorly aged um, race things. I thought Santa Fe Trail was so bad. I was like, who cares? <laughs> Santa Fe Trail and also um, what's the the they die with their boots on? Those like war movies where it's like the Civil War was bad and hard, but. Why? I mean, I don't know. But all these movies that I saw for this episode specifically, they're like about the South and how the North is bad. And I'm like, what the fuck? Did Hollywood have like this this crazy like romance with the South and like how things used to fucking be? Um, Yeah. Um, I really hated Raffles from 1939, oh my God. <clears throat> and and she even said like I this is not the type of thing I like doing, uh, which sucks because I really like David Niven and I think he's very charming. But that movie is nothing. That, Raffles, um, I think Raffles is the funniest name movie ever. Oh, absolutely. The guy's name is Raffles. Um, yeah, it's a very dumb dumb movie. Um, I mean, pretty much anything she did at the the end of her career, The Fifth Musketeer is... But the, once again, she's barely in it. That TV movie I mentioned, The Woman He Loved, was... Mm-hmm, I could mm-hmm. I could not believe I was watching it. And uh, <laughs> 1938, she makes this movie called Hard to Get, and it is so much fun until there is blackface mm. and tons of racism. And I was just like, no, 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 no. Why'd you have to do this? And like, literally at one point I was like, why isn't this movie been better restored? Um, and that's why. And yeah, gotcha. and the big heads up for hard to get. And I think the last one I want to mention, and we talked about this a bit beforehand, but the light in the Piazza, the light oh, in the yes. Piazza is a movie in which she plays the mother of a, of a girl who has had a head injury and therefore um, now has a, a, a disability um and uh she has like developmental issues yeah she has developmental she, issues she's played as if she's like a she's a child forever in her it's it's essentially the charlize their own season of arrested development but not played as a comedy very that and uh she falls in love with george hamilton and essentially olivia de havilland's like should i tell him or not and she spoiler alert doesn't Mm-mm, and no. everything works out in the end and i was just like this is offensive like yeah. this is not right um yeah. it's like and, see people with developmental issues can be hot sexy babies too <laughs> yeah that's what it really felt. and i was like Woof, oh no um and she's fine in it but she's she's like kind of i i don't think she ever quite found the groove between like caring parent and just like I don't she like she almost feels like a robot at some points. Like yeah. she's like talking to her husband and he's like, You sound very upset, and she's like, I am very upset at you. Mama, he says he's seen us before. Do you remember? Yeah, I'm afraid I don't. Signora, I uh my my English is not so uh Well my Italian is not so either, but I do thank you for helping my daughter. Clara, I think it's Signora, time I on Sunday I see you in the square. How'd you say the bigger square of Piazza Repubblica? You remember? Uh Musica uh, uh... <laughs> It's 
a, a, a sticky movie that, I mean, you texted me beautiful gowns, beautiful, beautiful gowns. gowns. Oh, that Technicolor. I love it. Let's get out of our one star reviews and into our five star reviews. I think that truly that five, six year period at late 40s, early 50s is just like the gold mine. Yeah, for it's banger Olivia. after banger after banger. Yeah. Um, and I have to go with 48's The Snake Pit. Um, it's just so fucking good. It's very good. Good. She's um, just like in complete control of uh, all of her, you know, powers. And from from the opening bit of the movie where she's just sitting on the bench and she's hearing voices and she's reacting to everything and she uh is able to like walk the line between like oh no i i remember who i am i'm but then like there's confusion like wait where am i and what's going on and no i am married but what and and she's just and she's she plays uh, I mean, there's there's a, such a wide array of emotions. What's crazy? What I did think when I was watching this, I was like, "This is the movie that Gothica wanted to be." <laughs> oh no, um, because this movie does have some like really um, effective uh, visual things that go on when uh, when I mean when she says like I was I felt like I was in a snake pit, you know, and like this the camera just like goes up all over it. The movie is very stylish. Um, it's frightening for sure um but she has such a warmth and really grounds the entire movie so it doesn't like fly off the rails um yeah i just think it's you can see the work she's putting in and 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 it's shocking to see this movie after seeing something like raffles or forza crowd or they literally just i can't imagine like this woman this woman who's doing this work you're making do silly you know and and not silly is bad but like not even silly good things you know this just like wasting her talents um and i honestly i mean they're they're like we mentioned they're always bangers in that time period but i think this the snake pit is far and away demonstrates what she's totally capable of doing come on i said to lie down on this table how are you today mrs cunningham you're going to electrocute me was my crime so great? No, Mrs. Cunningham. Nobody's being electrocuted. Dr. Summer and I are just trying to make you well. We're your friends. All right, sir. Would they dare to kill me without a trial? If I say I demand a lawyer, they'll have to do something. It's in the Constitution. Now, just relax, honey. Three against one. It isn't fair. Yes, I'd better call a lawyer right away. I want... Mr. Davis, I want to help Lucy. I, I think the other thing I love about the Snake Pit is it comes in this time where she's really playing these sort of. She rarely has like this contemporary uh, moment for herself. You know, mm-hmm. it, it comes in between Teach His Own and The Heiress and My Cousin Rachel and That Lady, which is not a good movie, but but like all these period pieces or movies in which she's having to play older. And I think what's great about The Snake Pit is she's she's really having a, a chance to, to play somebody who is her age, who is a lot like herself, but has this other thing and and play off that that other element. And uh, I don't think you end up seeing that that much in her career, in all honesty. Yeah, and there, I also love that, I mean, there are men... In this movie, of course, and like, but her situation and her getting out of it is not de- like dependent. Like, it's not like 
the relationship to these men is important to her. She going into the depths of this mental institution figures it out for herself, you know, and, and she makes these relationships with other women in this institution and is able to, you know, kind of come to terms with her mental illness. Um, And, you know, it feels like these men, like the doctor, her husband, they kind of give her the space to do that, which I really liked. Um, Yeah. And yeah, this movie is on Hulu. So you picking that ended up solidifying my five star review because I was down to two and now I'm down to one. And I think because you didn't pick it, I have to be the person who picks the heiress. Um, 1949's The Heiress. I mentioned everything about the plot earlier. William Wyler directed it. Um, but I think what's really fascinating about this role is watching her. As you mentioned, she's doing this voice thing, and maybe that's not... I don't know if it's the smartest choice, but it works. It like I don't know if anybody else could have pulled it off. I guess that's what I'm saying. I think anybody... Because she's being this sweet, sort of um, naive. naive. Yeah, and that's... And that's really what's interesting about her character. And, you know, in To Each His Own, you do watch her get harder, but there's very much a different situation in that film. And this, it was really fascinating to watch because she she's really in this terribly emotionally abusive relationship with her father. Mm-hmm. And you're really watching somebody's soul die. Uh, she, she thinks she falls in love with the first man she sees. And he might, in fact, be just an awful, awful human as well. He might be maybe not as bad as her father, but certainly could be if right. the relationship th- progressed in a, in a weird sort of way. And it's interesting because you do because you get to watch her change. You know, she inadver- it's inadvertent, and so I think it's a little unfair to be like she's the cause of her father's death. But like she no. pushes her father mentally to a place that makes it easier for him to die honestly good fucking yeah <laughs> and, and i think that's really fascinating to watch her go from this innocent to this right i think you know like, corrupt isn't the right word but that's that's sort of what's she, coming to mind she, it's like the loss of innocence yeah you know because it's not like she's uh, at the beginning of this movie she's you know naive and young or whatever but she's also like still a beautiful girl and just because she doesn't want to like fucking you know, have witty repartee with like party guests. She's just like a shy girl who like is doing normal things. She likes knitting and let yeah. her fucking knit. And they make her feel like she is less than her mother who is dead. Um, because her mother was this, you know, fucking, I don't know, network extraordinaire. Like, like it's, it's, it blows my mind. They're like, Oh no, you're bad because you can't network and like yeah. have good conversations with these dudes at this fucking dance thing that she didn't want to go to in the first place. Yeah. Street she told them she has a, a, like a, a heightened social anxiety that people didn't have the words for back then, you know? Right. And, and, and it's fascinating to watch and it is, you know, it is a very, I think it's a, a tricky performance, <clears throat> especially because she has to, play so much of her life and and change so much is that the song yes will you play it for me i do not play may i can you hear me way over there you know on my 10th visit you might even sit here mr townsend you are very bold 
between her father and this man who may or may not be telling her the truth, she's made a fool. And so she really just like kind of crusts over and like hardens up as opposed to like in teach his own. She was never like, I mean, she had the affair. She had the one night stand, you know, right. she was, she was not innocent. No, she just kind of is like dealing with her own decisions in this. It is truly like the, you, look what you fucking did with me. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, yeah, like you, you did this to me <laughs> and it, and it all culminates and I won't spoil it for you, but it culminates in one of my favorite endings in cinema oh, yeah. history. Oh, and yeah. so fucking good. Uh, but yeah, I I truly believe she deserved the Academy Award for that, and I'm glad she she got it. And um, that's the heiress. Shout out to Aaron Copeland's music in the heiress. Oh, so fucking good too. So good, so good. Um, so was there anything else you saw that you particularly liked? I before before you even jump in, my other five star review would have been to each his own, and I know you you didn't love it, but like, oh my god, when when I say I cried, by the way, and I'm. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I'm an easy mark when it comes to emotions. But <laughs> it gets to the end of that movie, and I was like, ah, she's his mom. <laughs> yeah. So, like, trust me. Uh, yeah, if you're in the mood for a classical tearjerker, that's it's there. Um, I really like Strawberry Blonde. I like um, Strawberry Blonde a lot. It's too. like it's a fun again, like if you're if you're gonna make a silly movie, like give her something to do, make it fun. And yeah. Starry, Starry Blonde really felt like that um, to me. Um, Gone with the Wind is a movie that exists it, that people love. I feel like it'd be hard for us to not say it's Gone with the Wind in her five star reviews, but also, yeah, yeah, yeah. She yeah. is very I agree good. with everything you're saying. She is very good, but it is a racist movie, and um, but also it is a spectacular, like, like looking at it is like kind of stunning. Yeah. Um, I it's, will say also I, that. I keep I, well. I just keep trying to impress this on people too. When you say it's a racist movie, it was also an incredibly liberal movie for its time period. And just to just to show you how some things have changed, and not everything obviously is for the better, and not everything is fixed. But I I do think it does say something that that Gone with the Wind is from a liberal perspective. Right, right, and and you see that in the movie when it's like you don't see any treatment. Um, of slaves like yeah poorly like you know and we get um butterfly mcqueen who i love um and it's so yes but looking at it now is is very jarring yeah um and i will say to hbo max's um i don't know giving them some props they they do a very nice warmer startup thing when you press play um, one of their black executives comes out and says, "Hey guys, this movie is complicated, um, and it's oh, not good. just like it's not just like a little like card." She talks about the historical context of the movie, which I really appreciated, and I thought it was handled really well. Um, and and like I, I mean, I literally started this movie at like a nine o'clock one night, and hey, I ended up... <laughs> Dan, Dan turned to me and was like, "Louis starting this at nine o'clock." So yeah, yeah that... I went to bed at one. Oh. Um, but she is very good. All that to say, Olivia de Havilland is very good in this movie. Um, but it's it is a a ride and a half. Um, I really love the great Garrick, but I'm a huge mark for James Whale anyways, as it is. Uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood, I do think, is maybe the highlight of the whole Errol Flynn 
Olivia de Havilland thing. I think they have so much chemistry and they don't even have that many scenes together. But mm-hmm. when they really spark in that movie, they really spark. And also, I just mentioned Dan. Shout out to Dan Walber, who has a weekly production design column over at the Film Experience. He did an entire write-up of the production design of The Adventures of Robin Hood, and I think it's worth your time. Yeah, that movie, I mean, that that movie is made for that type of uh, yeah. uh, analysis because it is gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think that wraps up our reviews. Why don't we get into the fast forward? Fast forward to today. Ryan Murphy's still alive. Mm. Yeah, Olivia de Havilland dead. So car- apparently the curse did not work. Damn it. <laughs> She was supposed to live for another 10 years. Um, (laughs) But uh, uh, yeah, it's hard to do a fast forward. We've run into this a couple times. Uh, I mentioned Cary Grant, our Vincent Price episode, our Joan Crawford episode. It's hard to be like moving forward. What do we want from this actor? But I think what's great is I, I think she made her mark both as a performer and setting a legal precedent that is still enforced to this day. And I think that's really fascinating and says a lot about her and who she was. And I don't know. I'm I'm just very happy that we got her for as long as we did, even if she wasn't doing as much work, even if she was just kind of living as a Hollywood luminary. Yeah, um, the, the scene of her walking out at the 75th Oscars and everyone standing up and she's in that like, gorgeous blue thing. She has like big white hair. I mean, it's just like we don't have a lot of those moments anymore. I don't think. Yeah. Um, and because it because re- it really feels like she's royalty, yeah, and, yeah, and and part of that is manufactured mystique on her part. Part of that is she lived so long, but ninety percent of it is that she worked hard and she was talented, mm-hmm. and and those things really paid off. I I feel bad because it feels superficial to say this. She, it doesn't hurt that she was gorgeous. Yeah. She was gorgeous from moment A. To the end of her life, she was a beautiful older woman. She was a five foot two on a dance with you, tiny little firecracker of a woman. And what I think, you know, speaking of like impression, it's just like to know oneself that well. I've always yeah. said this. Like, I think it's always just like, oh my God, I still don't know who I am. Um, <laughs> I don't know who Gavin is. She was 18 years old when she burst onto the scene and very quickly realized like I'm better than this. I'm more than this. And I want to do more and I can do more. And she proved over and over again. I, she could like literally she had the receipts, like the Oscar receipts and was like, this is not working and I can't keep doing this. I either need to change the situation or I need to go and bitch. She did both. She changed it and then she left. And if, you know, we said she incurred so many legal fees. Back in the day, that was a lot of fucking money. And she was not, like, the number one box office star. Right. Any Anyone else should have, could have done this. A man should have done this. <laughs> when she shows up to the Oscars, the 75th um, Oscars, and people stand up, it's because she changed the way Hollywood worked. And it wasn't, you know, like... A wave of people. It wasn't her and other people. It was just her. Just she her. paid for it, you know, and not only in money, but in time lost, you know, she and, and but God bless her. Like she made it work and she also reaped the benefits after yeah. that. She, you know, brought the people that she wanted to work with to make to each his own. She 
did the work to make, you know, the snake pit and the heiress. It's it was, yeah, for the heiress, didn't she say she had seen a yeah, production? Yeah, she saw of the it? play. Yeah, and said yeah. someone get the rights, get the air rights. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and that so, and that and that's really what it is. And she, you know, prophecy come true, she did put in the work and she got rewarded for it. She yeah. was a success because she put in the hard work. Right. And not only was she a success, but she said what she, she got what she wanted, which was respect. Respect. Exactly. From, and, and so she got both. She got both. She stands out from, I think, to me, like the other Golden Age. And, and to be fair to other Golden Age actresses, I am not the fucking expert. But <laughs> to me and, the, and you know, from Joan to her um, in these two episodes we've done, you know, I think Joan probably was like the sassier girl who had a little more like um, fire, but Olivia was able to do those roles, but also really made a difference um, in this community and in this profession that she loved. Um, and that's the difference. And that and I think that's why people really hold her in such high esteem. Um, it's just, it's, it's, you don't, come along every day where someone literally changes the entire industry that you work in. Absolutely. And, and, and certainly not something like Hollywood, which is, you know, fucking famously a garbage place to work. <laughs> but it's good because we're going right back to the studio system. So, hey, Yay. Yay. Oh my God, you're right. Ill, right. Yeah. <sighs> it's OK. It's OK. I don't want to end on that note. I want to say you're correct. Everything that you just said, Olivia de Havilland. Amazing. Thank you for doing everything you did. Yeah, and um, God, we I I I wonder if we will get any more like her. You know, yeah, yeah, um, she is truly one of a kind. So, so sorry, Joan Fontaine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not Joan Fontaine. <laughs> Whoops. Um, <laughs> right, so are we doing her episode uh, next, or? <laughs> <laughs> But I think that wraps up Olivia de Havilland. Thank you so much for listening to us this week. If you want to find us online, there are a myriad of ways of finding us. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at at the mixed reviews. We're also on Facebook. Just type in the mixed reviews. You can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram at the underscore mixed underscore reviews. And you can listen to us just like you have been doing on several podcast apps, all the major ones. We got Apple Podcasts. We got Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Music, Amazon. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review, a nice little five-star rating, and write a little nice words about us, and we'll read it on air. Yes, we love that. Um, Again, shout out to Susan and Ireland. Thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you guys. Uh, Wear your masks. Wash your hands. Fight the power. Donate. And um, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Since you've gone away. We don't know when my dream boat comes.